to episode 339 of Texing, hosted by myself, Justin Vincent, and Jason Roberts. Well, hey there, sir. How you doing? I'm doing great. How about yourself? Not too bad. Not too bad. I'm loving all the comments on the last show. Um, so I also have some apologies to make about the last show. Okay. <laughs> um, what are your, what are, you, are you apologizing to me? Or? I'm apologizing to you and the, uh, the <laughs> our very fine listeners. Um, okay. So first of all, I fixed the comments. Um, so what I'm talking about is the fact that we released two shows. The first show was nothing to see here, and the second show was nothing to see here. But on the first show, beautifully, it didn't work, and there was literally nothing to see or hear there, which was great. <laughs> um, yeah, that was great. I can't remember who commented. Somebody said something on Twitter. It was perfect. They were, it was really funny. <laughs> like, of course. <laughs> so I thought, because just at the same, like, in the same session that I posted the show, I went in and edited WordPress and fix the comments bug mm -hmm. so of course i'm thinking okay the reason i've obviously done something to screw up the show right so but i was in the middle of dealing with something you know big deal at work and um i didn't want to get back into trying to like unhack what i'd done or because i couldn't even remember where it was so right. i said i said to you look i've got to just clear up this stuff at work and then i'll get back to it so then i went back to it and i looked through everything and i tried changing code and it just still wouldn't work and then finally what it was was um I didn't put HTTPS colon forward slash forward slash in the, just the regular web form. Mm, I okay. just basically just put the, the domain.com, you know, texting right. Wow. So anyway, so, so now it's fixed and then we re-released the episode. So everyone got the episode, same name, um, probably looks weird in your, in your iPod feed, but iTunes feed, but, um, yeah, but then, then so many comments i also moved the few the comments that were there because most of the comments were this show isn't working it's not downloading so i just ignored all those and the couple mm -hmm. of comments that weren't about that i moved them to the new the new one and now yeah. we've got like well not only have we got 14 comments but we've got the longest comment in the history of texting <laughs> i don't know if that's an that's an unofficial um ranking uh that was uh, william radcliffe's he had like three yeah three or four comments in a row that were really long. And I was like, whoa. I was like reading through it. And I'm like, should I respond to this here? And I was like, nah, let's just do it on the show. Right. Yeah, I right. mean, it's just uh, too, too much, too much to write anyway. So do you want to, do you want to do, um, do the comments? We should probably do the comment stuff now then. Right? I would say do the comment stuff. Yeah. 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 Well, is there anything you want to say about them first? Or do you want me to just kind of dive into, I there mean, was a couple well, of I questions just, for me, but I a, a lot of the questions for you. I mean, I'll just say, um, thanks everyone for, for your kind words about the kidney stones <laughs> debacle <laughs> that I went through, which was a nightmare. Um, with morning brief, um, I'll, I'll, talk, you know, obviously talk a little bit more about that later in the show, but, uh, honestly, I'm interested in, in hearing, um, that there was a lot of great comments. I mean, Mark, Mark had uh, spoke about, um, the state of education, you know uh, what he went through and mm -hmm. chris had a great comment and obviously william radcliffe well, i mean wow that's that's actually beyond the amount i can read so um <laughs> <laughs> i think you have like a 200 word limit right that might so be reading, it, right? then you just you're done it's like if it's any more than 200 words justin isn't gonna read it it's, yeah. it goes into skim territory for him <laughs> like tldr was invented for you <laughs> no wonder i'm building morning brief right um so I should be like TLJV, <laughs> too long, Justin Vincent, you know, all right, format. So, okay, so, all right, um, I'll, I'll just jump in a couple uh, and respond to a couple, a few of these things, and, and if you want to add anything, you know. Okay, so um, Mark had a comment where he said, he started off talking about how 
um, you know, he was one of these gifted kids and, uh, you know, not being able to move ahead and things is, you know, really painful, was really painful for him. And he still has some resentment about how that all worked out. And I think he mentioned that he, he went to uh, college early and everything. So, yeah, I mean, the bottom line is that if you're too far away from the middle of the distribution of the normal distribution, either on the lower or higher end, it's going to suck. Education yeah. is really going to suck. And um, of course, we're simplifying. We say this distribution, because that doesn't mean across all subjects and all things, but just as a rough approximation, if you're in the top five or two percent or one percent, the further you get away, the the worse fit it is. And um, and, uh, you know, a lot of a lot of uh, support goes to the kids at the bottom, which makes sense. Right. Kids are struggling to read. They're struggling with the basic math facts that, you know, they can't you know, they just having really tr having a lot of trouble absorbing skills and, and, and basic information. So it makes sense that you'd want to help those kids. Right. Um, but what happens to the kids at the, t uh, who, who can move a lot faster when you don't support them and give them something challenging to do, they are absolutely bored of their minds. It's like sticking a sixth grader in a first or second grade classroom. Right. Right. And then coming back six months later and be like, so how's, how's school going? And they're like, what are you talking about? This is a nightmare. This is so stupid. So um, clearly he had an experience like that. So, you know, but what was interesting, he said, he, he was like, you know, he spent a lot of time in, in uh, mainland China as well as Taiwan. He's like, I, I think you're, you know, he's like, Jason, I think your idea of <laughs> how education is works over here is wrong. He's like, any something like Math Academy would never happen. Outside parents coming in and doing all the doing creating some program or whatever. So yeah, let me just clarify something. Um, well, first of all, stuff like this really barely exists in the U.S. either. <laughs> so whenever mm -hmm. I run across parents and they're like from other districts, they're like, how did you guys manage this? Because, you know, even next door at, uh, uh, you know, the, at, um, the you know, really kind of wealthy area, La Cunada, and there is really high functioning school district. And it's where jet, the, the Jet Propulsion Laboratory is. And so you have a lot of really bright, academically engaged parents. And they've tried to, to move the needle on stuff and they can't get anything to happen. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Even if you get like, you know, hey, 10 physicists and engineers from, or 20 or 30 from JPL all banded together to do something, the district just basically blows them off. <laughs> so the fact that we, you know, got Math Academy started in the, in the, in the Pastina district is just sort of like a mystery to them okay that said he's what what he said was that you know the 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 one of the strengths of the u.s school system is that there's so much diversity there's a non-uniformity is actually how i put it yeah. so right we have every school district kind of can do its own thing to a degree public school districts are limited by certain things obviously but there is you know if you don't once you don't like one school district you can go to another states vary quite a bit from, from one state to another you have charter schools you have private schools so people can opt out of the public school system and do yeah. other things um so i agree with that i i'm a big fan of giving people options and having lots of different ways of, of attacking a problem. Um, so what I was talking about in terms of like the, uh, you know, the education, particularly in China, was not what kind of education was over there so much as when you look at the U.S. universities and graduate programs and you look at a lot of the top students in the STEM fields, a huge percentage of them are from China. And you know, maybe Korea and India and places like that. And it could be just numbers, right? There's like one yeah. four, 1.4 billion Chinese. 
the Chinese as a culture seem to be taking STEM education very seriously. Yeah. And just by numbers, you're going to get a lot of very, you know, even if the, even if their um, education even if the education isn't isn't like adaptive learning, et cetera, et cetera. It's just the numbers based thing. Yeah. Even if it's uninspired and kind of rote and kind of restrictive, you're still just going to get, a, you know, just the numbers. You can get a lot of really bright, you know, students coming over to the U.S. Um, that's really all I meant is that, you know, not the process but the results. So if if the U.S does not take um, STEM education seriously, then we're not really going to, U.S. citizens are not going to participate in the STEM economy very much, right? Like all the, all the people doing all the innovative work and all the, you know, it, they're all going to be from overseas or, or, or a very high number of them. And as those economies continue to pick up, they're not just going to come over here and get their master's or PhD. They're going back to China, going back to India. So it's like, who, who's going to be here to, to do stuff in the U.S., right? And, and I don't mean to be nationalistic about it and be like, well, it's you know USA, USA, or whatever. But it's just like, there's a lot of talent in the U.S., given that we have 350 million people. And I think... And education needs to be focused on trying to get, develop as much of that talent as possible. That's, that's all I'm saying. But one thing I think that William said later on, which, you know, is something that I obviously believe in because I think that's what we're trying to do with the software platform, is create a, a system where anybody can move at whatever rate they need to move. Yeah. So it's highly personalized education. It's it's virtually impossible to do that at scale without using a, 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 an online learning system of some mm -hmm. kind. Yeah. You just can't. A teacher cannot, you know, have 30 students w working on 30 different things. This is impossible. At best, you can co cohort them and you say, okay, well, I got these got these five or six students who are really kind of advanced and I have them working on some stuff. Then I have these five or six students that are really, really struggling and I have them kind of going off and working with some intervention specialists and everybody else is with me. I mean, that's, that's usually the best that you will see, mm -hmm. you know? I mean, there might be a handful that are go to the, go, the, go one step further than that, but it's really, really hard. I've tried to do that. I even was in a situation where I had to do that briefly where I had two groups of kids and it was, it's really exhausting. It's like talking to two people at the same time, having two simultaneous conversations. Uh, yeah. Just, it's really difficult. So oh, I've seen it. I've seen it. You know, uh, first time through Modern Teacher. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, so is that is that your general answer to? Because in, in summary, that's sort of what William's talking about. He's basically saying, um, we, well, we no one's nailed um, personalized um, adaptive learning. Yeah, and that's that's what we're that's what we're trying to do. Yeah. Um, the the other well, he actually said. Um, a couple more things. One, would, which I just want to just address briefly. One was, he was saying, well, our, you know, he says, uh, it's one, here's one thing he said. He says, I wanted to look into what you were saying about the SAT-ACT. For the SAT-ACT, I thought they were initially canceled because of the insanity of giving them during the pandemic. That is true initially. But then um, California came out and said that they were going to postpone them uh, into at least 2025 and that is the result there's a i guess there was a lawsuit there were i can't remember what the name of the lawsuit was exactly but this is something that is an undercurrent that a lot of people in the, that's an agenda for a, a certain group of people they want to get rid of 
the SAT, ACT, mm -hmm. um, because they feel like it disadvantages certain groups, right? Yeah, we, I mean, we went into it last time. Um, yeah. So basically, it's sort of like collateral damage by being mm -hmm. nice, essentially. Mm -hmm. Yeah, <laughs> that's what you could yeah. call it, right? Yeah. Now, the other thing he was asking about, he's like, okay, so the real question is, are SATs, ACTs predictive? And it turns out that um, I actually read something about that. I can post a link in the show notes. Um, grades are, I believe, more predictive than the SAT, ACT alone mm -hmm. in terms of how good a grades a student is going to get at the next level because grades require two things, not just aptitude, but conscientiousness. Do you show up to class? Do you do, do your homework on time? You know, that's, that's sort of orthogonal to aptitude. Right. There's plenty of examples of kids or students who have high aptitude, but just don't have their act together or are not willing to, you know, all the things they need to do to get, you know, a good grade. Um, however, they it does add signal. So the, the mo if you want to get the absolute most signal, you mean like what's the highest chance that the student we bring in is not only going to get is going to get grades at the, at the, at the university level or at the level of our university. So particularly if we're talking more competitive universities its grades plus the AT, ACT, SAT. Mm -hmm. So if you, if you could only pick one thing, you'd go grades if you had, but you're throwing away signal if you get through rid of the ACT, SAT, ACT. Um, now, the, the thing is too, and again, we went over this a little bit, so I don't want to get too far into it, but mm -hmm. you know, you can, you can game the, the system, not by, you know, obviously there was that varsity blues, you know, <laughs> case and all that stuff. Yeah. But that's a very, very, vanishingly small number of kids who parents paid off somebody and got through the side door or whatever they call it. But you can really study for these things. If you get a really good, if you get a good tutor or you get your, there's practice, practice books and you just like work on practice SATs and ACTs for a month, you're going to increase your scores. Um, most kids aren't going to do that, but some kids will. Some parents will just sit down and say, okay, every twice a week you're working with us, tutor, or you're going to be taking these classes every Saturday morning for four hours. And, you know, they've had those things for years. And um, I think it's become much more of a, of a thing. So, like, what, what used to be the average score to get into, say, like an Ivy League school, so like a Harvard-Yale kind of thing, in my time was about a 1330 was sort of like the, the average score. Um, then it and then it got up to now it's like a it's like a 1525 or something out of 1600 which is mm. insane because in my day like nobody got that high that was just not a realistic score um i never heard of anyone getting you know into the 1500s and if anybody said it and i was kind of thought they were lying and there were two kids in my year two kids in the entire country that got 1600s and they were in good 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 morning america mm -hmm. now it happens all the time um and i think it's and the average scores are still around the same. They've gone up a little bit, you know, like 10 or 15 points or like, a, you know, a set of 507 to like a, you know, a 520 or something for math or whatever. But what's happened at the very highest schools, so the most competitive schools, the kids that are really trying to get into Harvard and MIT and Stanford or whatever, those kids are very conscientious about schoolwork. They're doing, not only are they getting A's and studying for AP tests and doing all these curriculars, they are cranking and prepping for these ACT, SATs because if they, it's an arms race. Because if you're a natural 1330, so you're a very, very bright kid, which is probably mm -hmm. correlates to like 132 IQ or something, mm -hmm. let's say. And you don't, you're like, ah, you know, I'm smart, just walk in. And then 
other kids that are in your range in the top couple percent of kids in their school and they do this and they knock their score up by 200, 250 points, which is totally doable with, you know, four or five months of concerted effort, then it, the, 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 the admissions committee cannot distinguish between the two, right? You know, which one's a natural, which one's a natural and which one walked through. I mean, there, there might be a few, you know, a handful of natural 1550s walking around. They never once looked at a prep book, but I'm, I'd be really skeptical that there's very many of them. Most of mm -hmm. them were natural 13 somethings and then they, they did some work and got it pushed up. So, and, but the thing is that, you know, it's not just a, a wealth thing. It's not like it's just, I mean, anybody can buy a $12 Princeton review book, right? And you don't necessarily need a tutor for these things. So it's not like, well, only kids can afford fancy tutors. It's really conscientious kids. And a lot of times it's conscientious parents. It's kind of like the proverbial tiger parent. You know, they get in and they're just like, you're doing this. And get the prep books and they go and, you know. But it does, it, does dilute the, it does dilute the signal, right? It does dilute the signal because it's hard to tell. Is there any level of what you're doing sort of um, creating the conditions sort of like a mental hack to make them learn better? Is there any aspect of what you're doing that it's like that, if that makes sense? So you're talking about the math academy system? Yeah, math. Yeah, the math academy system. Like, because so I, I was just thinking, because you you, you're just saying, like, you know, anyone can go out and buy a Princeton book, but then there's other things that 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 matter, right? So I'm just thinking, in the context of you, are the other things that matter, like just the whole setup, is mm -hmm. the do you create the context and the setup that makes it work better? Is that what's going on here? Well, you you can't really make somebody smarter. <laughs> Right. right. And you really can't make someone more conscientious than they are. I've tried because my son is not conscientious. Colby's not conscientious. And <laughs> what I've do you mean just, by conscientious? Um, really cares and really tries hard to get things right. So like Colby will never write anything down when he's doing math problems. He'll do some crazy differential equation problem. It would take nine steps and he'll do like most or all of it in his head and then get him and get a negative sign wrong or something. And you're like, dude. What are you doing? Right. <laughs> so, so the, um, you know, there's sort of the stereotypical, like really studious, conscientious girl who takes really good notes and goes to the office hours and double checks about what's going to be on the test and is really studies for days ahead. That's conscientious. Okay. For the kid who kind of, you know, doesn't really pay that much attention to class and kind of, yeah, I'll do his homework, but isn't like freaking out about getting a perfect score and maybe studies an hour for that. I mean, you know, they're not. And that latter person was actually me. Right. <laughs> so it's so not very conscientious. But there are, you know, so you're not, the conscientious people are maximizing their aptitude, right? And they can punch way above their weight, right? So Go some ahead. kid who may not have a super high IQ, they have, you know, they're pretty bright, but they're not exceptional, but they really put in the, the work. They really want to get stuff right. I mean, I've seen people like that and, and they do really, really well, you know, um, now, there's a limit to how well they can do in things like math and physics, which are really G-loaded, really aptitude-oriented. And there's like, there's only so far. They hit a wall where it's just like, or hit a ceiling where it's just like, it's just too complex that no amount of going to office hours and taking good notes and studying is really going to get you over the hump. But if you don't have a certain level of conscientiousness, you're just not going to get past a certain level because it's just, it's just hard. It just gets to a point where you're, you're just living off your genetics and just being like smart only gets you so far and some kids it runs out of gas after high school some it runs out of gas at undergrad or you know grad school whatever at some point they're just not willing to do all the extra work required to to reach whatever the next level is um 
you know, and so, and I have, you know, you see, you know, kids that I've taught like that, they have, they all range. Conscientiousness is like one of the five big personality traits, like introversion, extroversion, and, you know, there's, I can't, but so, but just going back to the question, so, uh, like, are you, are you like, if you get a kid with low conscientiousness, are you getting them further than they would normally by doing some kind of hack or something? Well, I think, yeah, I, I mean, I think the system is going to outperform the vast majority of teachers. I think, I think that if you, and I'd like to do this at some point, I'd like to get a variety of classes of different, um, levels, whether it's sixth grade math or calculus or abstract algebra and say, okay, you got your 30 kids. We got 30 kids. Let's take a, take an initial assessment where they are and let's see where they finish up. And I think we will generally outperform. So this is sort of like, um, like deep blue, you know, versus yeah, uh, humans. <laughs> like Kasparov, right? Or Alpha Star versus the, the Go right. expert from Korea. Nice. So, um, the, 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 the only, the, where it doesn't work as well is if the student doesn't want to try. Right. Now, yeah. a parent or a teacher can sit over the kid and say, damn it, sit down and finish your homework or literally sits down and like kind of force marches them through. And, and a lot of, you know, we have to do that with one of our kids with Izzy. I mean, she just does not want to do yeah. homework. And Sandy literally has to just like force her from to not because she would just drop out of the Zoom class, Zoom meetings. She just spaces out, doesn't do her work. I mean, she's not with the program right um and colby is only like you know half with the program although i had and airily my youngest is very much with the program right so i have the whole <laughs> spectrum of conscientiousness right yeah and i have the whole spectrum of math aptitude so i've you know just even with my three kids and they're all genetically should be like the same but they're totally different so you're saying airily is the one who's really got the high conscientiousness very high conscience. She's so, very, but she's probably not not 100%. I've seen kids who are even more than her. And they're like literally freaking out about every test. Oh my god, I got to study. You know, they're just like they're just, they're almost neurotic. They're so freaked out. But she's also got your family smarts. So does that mean she is just like uh, nailing it or No, she's so she would be aptitude-wise um, she would be like what I would call again, like uh, around like the 93rd percentile, 95th right, percentile, right. which is kind of at the very bottom of Math Academy. So okay. she has to really work hard. And the thing is, though, when it comes to math and physics and things like that, you know, there's just a sort of this you know, athletics, like everything. It's like you can work hard to solve the to do stuff, but you still don't really see it. You still can't generalize like someone with a higher aptitude is. That's one thing that we, one way we would describe aptitude math is like how quickly you can you generalize. So the kids who are the 99th percentile, they're almost like made of a different material. Like you start explaining it to them and halfway through they already get it and they already see the connections and they're predicting the next things that are, you're going to tell them. Hmm. It's weird, right? They're like it's that just a like reminding them. You're reminding them of something they already learned before. You know, they've never <laughs> seen it before. I see, yeah. And you get a little further down and it's like they get it pretty quickly. You know, they're whip smart, but you have to explain it. And then, you know, they can't generalize as far, but they can generalize a little bit beyond what you've ever shown them of. But, you know, they can interpolate well between examples that are strewn further apart. And you get further down and you get towards the middle of the curve and it's like you got to present it to them numerous times. You got to get lots of practice. They're not really going to be to generalize beyond anything they've really ever seen before. And it takes them a while to really 
nail absorb the material and they forget it very quickly and and then they have a hard time of applying so he's like oh yeah i explained to you you know all about you know you know quadratic equations you know here's a projectile that goes how how long until it lands and they're just like what you know they have no no idea how to do that mm-hmm. and then you get down to the further end and you have like my daughter izzy who has dyscalculia and had no number sense mm-hmm. and i remember when we'd be in the car i mean this was even when she was like <laughs> fifth or sixth grade and she would like she was always just fascinated with like babies and kids and stuff and she's like well when you know when izzy wa- or when ari was a baby this and that when she was how old was this and i say well she was like six months and she's like no like how many years i'm like she's less than one she's like no she would actually get mad because she thought i was messing with her i'm she's not one if you're not one she's more than zero she's born she's not one she's like eight months so she's like she's like ah! like she couldn't comprehend it Mm. And it's rare, you yeah. know. Um, and uh, you know, meanwhile, Colby, um, when he's like in third grade, totally faked out Sandy on his multiplication tables because he he learned he could calculate so fast that he thought that Sandy thought she had memorized them. <laughs> <laughs> I only I only picked up on it. I was like, I I quizzed him on something. Something was a little harder to calculate, like eleven times twelve or something. And, and he would say to buy himself an extra second. He go eleven times twelve, and he did that a couple times. Like, why are you repeating the question? Just answer it. <laughs> And then I wake, wait a minute, you're calculating this, aren't you? And I'm like, Jesus Christ. <laughs> he was stalling for time. <laughs> yeah, but, you know, so he just had that real natural sense of he could, he, he still of almost any kid that we've had in Math Academy, he's the best mental calculator I've seen. Mm-hmm. But his conscientiousness sucks. And as fast as he can learn stuff, he can forget it. Like, it's just gone. <laughs> because, because... You know, and, and it's like another thing with conscientiousness, but this is a little different. It's like what your interest is in a subject. So, like, for him, he likes math, but he doesn't, like, love it. He, does, he doesn't think about it for one second after he's finished the problem set. Yeah. Not for one second. He doesn't lie in bed thinking about polar equations or differential. It doesn't occur to So, therefore... Whereas kids who are kind of into it are kind of playing with it, their mind, they're thinking about it, you know, and it's really hard to compete against kids who, who have that who have that going on. And that's yeah. one of the things, by the way, just at a, I know this is off topic, but that's one of the things that I found that a math, our mathematician instructors, one thing that differ, that ha, ha, has them having a hard time understanding the difference between themselves and our math academy kids is that there's only like one kid per year, per class, who really, really loves it. Loves it like I would like to do math just for fun on my own on a Saturday with no credit or anything. One of the, one of the things that differentiates our mathematicians from our Math Academy students is that the mathematicians absolutely love math, right? Yeah. Like, that is their favorite thing. Um, it wasn't that they were just really good at it, but they just loved it, that they mm-hmm. had both. Where a lot of our students, they like math, it might be their favorite subject, and they're and they and they're good at it, and they like the fact that they're good at it, and it creates a positive feedback cycle. But they're not sitting at home doing a bunch of extra math on their own, right? Right. They're not, and that's a different category of kid. That's usually like their math competition kids. They just love, you know, solving problems for just for the sake of doing it. You might we might get one kid like that a year. Most kids, you know, it's just a difference between the two. Um, 
Yeah. So let me just, there's a couple more questions I just want to answer. I mean, I know we went off on some tangents. Do you mind if I... Yeah, no, that, that's fine. This? I'm just, um, is, is it about Math Academy as well? Um, one is briefly, but um, I'll try and... Yeah. Answer it quickly. No, I, do, I hate to be the time cop, but, uh, you know, it's like, um, yeah, <laughs> 30 minutes or whatever. But yeah, I, no, that's, I, that's cool. Yeah. I get it. I get it. I get it. So um, let's see. So, so William, the other thing he said, um, well, he was talking a little bit about, um, you know, who, who I was reaching out to, like homeschool stuff. And, you know, he says, you know, who have you reached out to, you know, besides Twitter and, and things. And, 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 and Matt, um, S had also mentioned, he's like, Hey, you know, if you're going to use Twitter, you should probably really niche down and really focus on, you know, these, you know, math education and things like that. And I, you know, cause I was talking about last episode about how I was getting a little, um, I was thinking it would be, if Twitter was a bit of a distraction, mm -hmm. maybe not an efficient channel, efficient channel. Um, I think that's the way I, I'm going to approach it in the sense that, I mean, I'm not going to use Mar uh, Twitter as a marketing channel because it's too it would be too frustrating on me for me to focus on something so narrow as part of my uh, my set of interests and who I am yeah um, so I you know I mean some people are I mean they're really they're just like one that's really what they think about most of the time I have anybody's been this podcast is known I think about a lot of different things so for me to just say oh I just talk about this one that's two percent of my life just would feel really frustrating but that would also dilute it as a as a as a marketing mechanism so I, I really think the way I'm gonna uh, do the growth stuff will be outside of of, of Twitter and I, I don't think it'll be hard I think a lot of people are uh, potential customers and stuff are, are easily targetable because they they sort of coalesce in terms of like homeschool groups enrichment groups math things so Mm -hmm. I'm not, I'm really not too worried about that at all. But, um, you know, we, I have people coming out to me, coming to me already trying to get access now. I'm not even trying to talk to anybody. Um, so I know there's a lot of people who have this problem. So, so I'm not, not really worried about it. Yeah. Um, the, uh, but I think that's, I think those are the big, uh, I think those are the big ones. It was really nice having the comments. Um, it was really nice. Um, just, I'll just, just finish up by Chris who said, uh, very meaty episode, enjoyed all the, all the topics. Um, and then he spoke about watching Sanderson's lectures on writing mm -hmm. and, um, just the, the other thing that was interesting about what he was talking about was how he, he has literally worked in automated driving. <laughs> yeah. And, um, the, the sort of the level three and four is like where you're sort of intertwining the person with the, with the software or, or the, or the mm -hmm. level five and six, which I thought was kind of interesting as well. Yeah. The one thing that he said, which is, was interesting. He was like, well, he was sort of relating the, um, the student as like the driver. Right. Right. Where I think more of in the context of this is that the student is more the passenger. Interesting. Right. Um, so really we're talking about automating what the teacher does. And as opposed to and automating what the driver would do. Yeah, I mean, yes, the student does stuff, whereas a passenger, passenger in a car can only sit there and do nothing. I don't mean that the student is passive, but the process of selecting lessons, going through the lessons, marking things right or right, figuring out what to do next, figuring out remediation, you know, presenting, doing all that stuff, that's all the sort of the teacher. Right. Yeah. And just like the car figures out, is it going to speed up? Is it going to turn left? Is it going to whatever? So, um, I really think in terms of the automated driving system, it's, it's, that's the, that's the analogy I would make, Got it. but we're, we're, I'm going to write up once we're ready to sort of 
go public with the stuff, I'm going to, I'm going to do a big blog post on that. I think that'll, I think it'll be fun. It'll, it'll elicit a fun discussion and I think it will help people sort of picture what it is that we're, we're trying to do. Otherwise they're like, what do you nice. mean it teaches them? Well, I don't like, they just don't know what we're talking about. You know, I mean, cause, yeah, it, cause cool. you get questions sometimes on here and I know I've talked about a lot of this stuff and we have some very smart people listen to it and they still don't totally get what we're doing. So it's just like, that's just the way it is. You know, when you're doing something that's complex and people can't really see it, they have a hard time. That's <laughs> like, understand exactly what it is you're talking about. Mm-hmm. So go on. I mean, I'm talking a lot. So Luke, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, well, I'll just do, um, I've, I've got a lot, I would have a lot to say about morning brief, but I haven't really had a chance to collect my thoughts in, in a, in a really coherent way. So I'll just sort of say what I can. Um, and I'll, by next show I'll do, uh, I'll have a better, you know, more coherent update. But what I will say is, is that using morning brief, uh, enabled me to collate a bunch of links for us to talk about so mm-hmm. much more easily than before. Oh, like, cool. you know, so that was pretty cool. So it worked for me in that, in that kind of research way. Mm-hmm. Um, we have, you know, we do continue to work on it. The, the, the problem, the semantic tagging, uh, I, I think that there's going to be a lot more work needed on our part to connect semantic tagging along with a hierarchy, along with like user profiles and connecting it all up. So, um, it's, it, it's, a, it's a hard problem because the thing is, the thing, the, the issue with semantic tagging is that basically you get an article and you sort of say, oh yeah, that's about Elon Musk. Oh yeah, that's about, you know, Tesla. Oh yeah, that's about this. But every, each tag is just its own little one mm-hmm. sort of data point just for that article. And then, you, you know, you get a stream of articles about Tesla. But mm-hmm. they might be, you know, some of them, some of the articles might have just tangentially, rela- you know, mentioned Tesla. Mm-hmm. And some of them might really be about Tesla. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, so it's, there's, there's going to be a, a lot more finesse. You know, we're going to need to do like... Yeah. I'm going to say two you more levels. You can't do a word of... search. You gotta, yeah, you're going to have to do some sort of an analysis or analysis and give it a ranking of like between zero and one of like how much is is a Tesla the primary yes. topic here or is it just mentioned, like you said, tangentially? So it's it's complex. Um, and one one thing that I did, so I've, I've got the, uh, what I consider to be a very nice rendering of a brief. Uh, do you mind if I quickly show you that? Mm-hmm. Should be just a second. Well, you know, it's interesting. Uh, there was a company back in the 90s that was doing something called, uh, called um, I think it was called Autonomy. And they would do um, a textual classification. So for like in enterprises, so documents that were all throughout the enterprise. So you start working on something, maybe there's stuff that's already been created and things based on that. And they would use um, Bayesian classifiers for that um, unstructured we, data classification. So... I didn't want to sort of reveal this before because I thought that it was going to be the main thing. Um, but the deeper that we've got into it, the more complex that I realized this is a really difficult problem. Mm-hmm. Um, so we actually are using a tool called Text Razor, mm-hmm. um, which is a which is an uh, an online service that does semantic tagging, and that that is it's a great tool, and it it does really it, it's a great general case semantic tagging system. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's it's obviously the with the amount of articles that we're working with, it's it costs a certain amount. Mm-hmm. Um, but now that now that we've now that we've got it, and especially now that I've done this, which is basically to go ahead and try and create um, some morning briefs for uh, three people. I've done this last week. So okay. here, here is a morning brief that I did for someone, mm-hmm. and so you can see. So each one of these is a tag up here, mm-hmm. 
And then um, I'll just sort of browse through and you can just have a quick look at the kind of stuff that's coming up in there. Right. Kind of thing. And so in putting together the profile, what I realized is it's, it's, it's kind of complicated. Um, and there's going to be a lot of work in understanding, in understanding um, sort of tag clouds, as it were, mm -hmm. and putting them together into different profiles. Mm -hmm. But also, like, like we're saying, it's, it's only sort of 35% of the way there, the text razor, a part of it. Right. There's going there's going to be a lot more to build on top of it. That's what that's what I'm realizing and what Joe's been telling me and I haven't been believing and um now it's sort of come to the point where oh yeah. Like for exa <laughs> for, for example, for yeah. example, there's so much stuff in 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 culture that's not even it's not even getting tagged in the first place. So right. for example, women in tech. It's just it, the tag doesn't exist in our system, but mm -hmm. there's a lot of articles that would definitely fall under women in tech. Mm -hmm. So and that's just like a just a one example of, of, of the problem. Another example is writing. So mm -hmm. we've got, you know, like, I don't know, 100 plus articles in our 300,000 article system about writing. But mm -hmm. that that cannot be correct. Like right. there is out of 350,000 articles that we've pulled in, there's a lot more about that are that are about writing. So that's why I'm saying, you know, TextRaiser, it's a great first uh, sort of base level generalist mm -hmm. solution, mm -hmm. but it doesn't understand our our use case. So, yeah, well, I mean, tech, uh, classification of unstructured data is a non-trivial problem, right? I mean, this is stuff that researchers are continuing to struggle with. So, I mean, it, it's funny. I mean, obviously, you have no background in machine learning and math, so there's no. it's not surprising that you would have been surprised at how complex it is, right? It just... Um, but yeah, this is a huge deal. I mean, you know, you might... There might there might be some more off the shelf tools that you can use to get like a an eighty twenty solution, you know. I mean, there's there are um, libraries that have been written to handle text classification of unstructured uh, classification of unstructured data. I mean, I'm obviously not an expert in it, but there's probably some stuff. And and and, and Joe is probably looking at that. But you know, you can probably get something at least as pretty good, as opposed to just like, you know, hey, how many how many times is Java or Python or Rust or whatever mentioned in this article or something, you know? And so the count of times that certain types of words are, then it means it's part of some type of a category. But yeah, it's a super complex thing for sure. I mean, this is the kind of stuff Google works on, right? Right. I mean, what, what do you have, do you have, what, what, what are the big blockers for you guys right now from being able to have we sort of We are just something? moving towards that. Um, we're just moving towards that, that uh, I guess, private paid private beta slash kickstarter re uh, release okay and we're getting we're getting close as you can see here i'm like i've kind of got the design down now for what a brief looks like this is using tailwind um, and regular css now i need to convert this to pure html in your email in your email client mm -hmm. but this this works uh, the same template here is working in the context of um you know building your brief mm -hmm. this isn't fully finished uh, obviously i'm got some more design work to do on this part. I'm not too keen on these these little orange buttons here. Um, but this is going to look pretty sweet once I'm done. Yeah. And well, I don't on. think we should dwell too much on the uh, show and tell because nobody can hear Nobody can yeah, see sure. what you're talking about. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, basically, it's just it's it's really just tying up the, the sign up, uh, the payment. And uh, like I was, t Joe asked a similar question. And I think the way that I would look at it is this. This is what I said to him. It's like we've got, you know, 15... We've built 15 individual Lego things like, you know, like a boat, like a boat engine, like the side of a boat. So all those pieces are working. Mm 
Mm-hmm. Now we've got to plug them together and actually make the final journey. You right. Know? Mm-hmm. So that's kind of where we're at. And then marketing pages and stuff like that. So I'm thinking we'll be very close by the time we record the next show. Wow. Very close. That is two, to, so two to weeks. Re- to a first release, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I always say two weeks, even if it means six months. But this gen, I'm, I feel <laughs> very, I feel very, almost very confident <laughs> okay. that we'll be ready for that, yeah. Good, good. Um, yeah. That's the, that's the thing. Uh, what was I going to say about it? So I got, I got some good feedback, you know, um, from the three people that I shared with. They all said that uh, as they... Because I, I made it so that you could browse back through time. So when they when they click the link for their brief that I built for them, guesstimating the topics that they'd like, mm-hmm. it would show them a brief and then they could click back and then it would go back the previous day, the previous day, the previous day. So they could sort of look at, you know, five, five, ten days. And yeah, everyone yeah. said that, yeah, yeah, there was interesting stuff. Okay. Um, a couple of the oh, two people said that it's still not like a, a big problem for them, mm-hmm. uh, that version of it where it sends an email a day. Mm-hmm. But then when I showed them the live dashboard mock-up along with seeing this data they were like yeah that that makes a lot of sense they okay. would really like something like that to do how many people are you testing live this research with? i've only just shown it to three people so far oh okay all right yeah i was going to send it to you but then i thought no it's not quite ready for jason to just have a look at some data <laughs> <laughs> am, I, am i too much of a hard ass is that <laughs> yeah right <laughs> okay yeah um well cool yeah that's great mm-hmm. that's great all right you want to get into some of your links yeah, I mean, there's. <laughs> I'll let you drive. Lot. You just pick pick whatever. whatever you want I to mean, talk about. there there is a lot. I mean, um, well, why is everyone talking about UFOs right now? All right, the New York Times. Article. Yeah, I mean, like, why? I mean, I, this was this was more of a question that I had for you. Why? Why do you think this is the case? Why is it now? Like, th- we've been doing this show for ten years. There's never been so much uh, kerfuffle about UFOs. <sighs> Uh, well, you had, um, you had uh, some of those videos released, um, you know, into the public that were, um, verified by the, I guess the Pentagon, that those were actual photos from fighter pilots or whatever. And then, um, a couple of those fighter pilots went on and one, I think, um, testified in front of some kind of subcommittee in Congress a few years back, a couple years ago. And another guy has been, you know, he's, both of them been on a couple of, I've been interviewed by some, you know, one by 60 minutes. There's a 60 minutes episode. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and these things just kind of build on each other. You know, I remember Lex Friedman, who's got a pretty big show now, interviewed one of them. I think even Joe Rogan might have interviewed one of them. So, um, I mean, look, UFOs is like science fiction, right? In the sense that it's like, it's stuff that everybody thinks kind of, it's kind well, of a fun topic, right? Yes. But, but, but people used to really poo poo it, but like people are beginning to take it kind of seriously. Yeah. Well, I think what happens is is that more and more people are realizing that some of this um some of this evidence is not something you can just dismiss out of hand. Right? Yeah. That you can't just say, "Oh, well there's some crazy person saw it in the night they mystic Venus." It's like, "No, this was caught on radar and infrared and it was chased around by two um jets with four fighter pilots who watched it for 5 minutes." up, a down, below it, caught on, caught on radar, saw, for, you know, stuff, you know, these fighter pilots saying they've seen it for, for two years, they were seeing like every day, this stuff. It was like so common. So, you know, and, you know, as we interviewed a couple of um, people who, who really went into the history of the hard evidence on that, Leslie Kane, who did, um, was at UFOs, it was like fighter pilots, generals, and government officials go on the record, remember her? Yeah. And um, Richard Doland, who 
you know, occasionally you'll see on these as a talking head on some of these UFO shows, but he did, a, he did the, his was like UFOs and national security state. So he basically compiled all of the, um, basically military and government documents that had been published on every incident. And it was just, just huge amounts of really compelling evidence. It was just like, wow. You know, you go through and after like 50 pages, you're just like, okay, okay, okay that's enough. <laughs> like, you know, fighter pilots, chase something thing, weird going radar, on something you know, weird, it's like, yeah. you can't just, so, I don't know. I mean, I think it was like when New York Times and the Washington Post starts coming out and saying, hey, you know, these these legitimate people said this, you know, I don't, you know, they're not really making a statement about it. And then I think it's, you know, more and more people are like, look, you know, I think, I think people are open to the possibility. Well, that's that what I was going to say. That's what I was going to say. Do you think that there's any credence to the idea that the world psyche is just ready? Yeah, I, I mean, I, th I, th I think I think it's a combination of things. I think it's a combination of there's enough enough of the hard evidence that's come out that you can't just dismiss, and people are just like, okay, like I can't just say all those four fighter pilots are crazy, and the radar was malfunctioning, and the video was an art was just some kind of weird artifact, and the infrared, you know, I mean, it's like what, at some point you're just being ridiculous, you're just being you know engaging in sophistry or something, um, and. So they look at it and they go, that stuff is really interesting. And it's, there's, it's hard to come up with a really good explanation. So people are like, okay. Uh, and I think, you know, with all of these exoplanets have been discovered over the last, you know, 10 years, right? I mean, you know, there's like, it went from like one to like, okay, well, maybe there's some gas giant planets, you know, oh, wait, maybe there are non-gas giant planets. Oh, wait, there are tens of them. There are hundreds of them. Wow. You know, it's like all of a sudden now they find out that there are just this huge number of plant exoplanets, of plants in other solar systems that are in the Goldilocks zones that could potentially have a life. People are like, okay, so that makes it a little more possible that there could be some kind of life. Now you may say, well, it's just going to be like microbial life, if that. But still, it really makes people start to think, you know, maybe this stuff isn't so um, hard to, you know it's it's something that could be could be true could be happening so i mean like the way i think about it is this i i categorize myself as a curious skeptic what i don't like is when people um dismiss evidence without having really looked at it mm -hmm. and they are sort of engaged in, they're sort of disingenuous so they engage in certain types of logical fallacies and they'll do they'll take the straw man argument which means they'll they'll take they'll cherry pick like one piece of of one piece of evidence and one instance and then they'll just say well there's there's a potential alternative explanation for that i'm like that's well, like the, the the link i sent you i'm a physicist who searches for aliens ufos don't impress me and basically talking about how for example the one where the the, the spaceship was skimming the ocean um he's uh he's pointing to various different skeptics who've who've explained how that could just be a trick of optics he says, maybe yeah right it may be <laughs> Right. <laughs> right. I mean, OK, like, let's go to anything. Let's talk about the murder of George Floyd. OK. Mm. It could be that the video was faked. Could be. Yeah. Probably it wasn't. It probably <laughs> wasn't. Right? right. I mean, I don't know. Maybe, you know, maybe it was just a bunch of people made this fake video and they all just kind of got together. And, you know, it's like at some point you go, this just sounds like bullshit. Like people are just, I don't know. It just, 
I, look, it's fine if if somebody can take all the stuff on. Then I think they need to, um, I think they need to try and um, evaluate it holistically and take all the evidence of any given instance and look at some of the harder to discredit instances and then go after it that way. I would love to see that. What I would like to see is almost like a jury trial. Okay, oh, that'll be fantastic. Where you, where you can't just have somebody come in and write an opinion piece in New York Times or post say, well, and they just cherry pick the, the weakest piece of evidence and they kind of say, well, that may not be true of this. And therefore, I'm really, really smart and I'm a serious person. And everybody else who thinks this might be true is an idiot. You know, it's like, shut up. Like, let's get a situation. Wait, are, you, are you there? Are you like, looks yeah, like a yeah, video. Okay. Yeah. Let's get in a situation where you have, like a jury trial, we introduce evidence. The prosecution is only going to introduce the very best evidence because if you're if you are um, uh, prosecuting a, 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 a let's say a criminal uh, doing a prosecuting a criminal trial, you're only going to introduce the evidence that you think is the strongest. You're not going to because if you introduce evidence that is you know sort of good or maybe not good, the defense is going to shoot that down, and the defense is going to say, well, I mean, the jury is going to think, well, like some of the evidence they brought in really got shot down, so maybe the case is weak. Right. You don't do that. You say, OK, well, I got 100 pieces of evidence. Um, we're going to focus on the 10 pieces that are really, really compelling and really paint a complete picture and really hard for people to shoot down. That would okay. be such a great TV show. I wish they would do that. A documentary of some kind. Yeah. And, great and, idea. Then, and then it would be but then it'd be then it was like, OK. Then the defense would have to come in and say, OK, we're going to try and shoot this stuff down. But you got to shoot it all down because if you don't shoot it all down or a lot of it down, the jury's going to be like, well, you didn't do a very good job, <laughs> right? Mm -hmm. Like I, the, the prosecution seems to be making a stronger case. I would, love to, I would love to see something like that. So you have, you know, both sides are trying the hardest to win. They have, they have rules of, 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 you know, introducing evidence and all that kind of stuff. Instead of we have this sort of like, you know, like we see these trials in the, in the, in the media, and you get these partial pictures and everybody thinks something's true and then it turns out it's totally not true, mm. right? Like the Wuhan stuff. Like it's looking really, really likely. <laughs> yeah, that is opinion. really picking up steam. Yeah. I mean, it, it, and I, I, you know, so to switch gears, do you mind if we switch gears a little bit? No, go for it, yeah. No, well, anyway, just to finish off the, the UFO stuff, I'm a science fiction fan. I'm a science fan. Um, so that stuff is just fun to think about, you know? Um, so I'm open to thinking about it. Um, for that reason, yeah. I'm also don't like it when people, I feel like people are being intellectually dishonest and playing the perpetual skeptic, because I think a lot of times people will play the, here's one thing I'll think about paying the perpetual skeptic is that it's, it's almost like, um, so, you know, I used to be, when I started my, uh, my first jobs was in the option trading. So building out these, these model, these volatility models to predict, you know, fair pricing of, of these uh, derivatives contracts called options. Okay. There is a kind of option called a put option. And a put option is you make money if the price of something goes down, if you own it. To right. short selling, yeah. like like what they're doing against it's Elon Musk. Kind of like right. short selling. It's different, but let's just yeah. say it's the right okay. to sell something at a certain price. So let's just say if the price goes down, you make money. Okay. Um, if you buy a put. Now, if I sell you a put, Right. If I sell you a put that you know uh, Google is going to go down in price, and 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 it's little, you know, and I sell you a really like uh, I, you know where it's really low priced up, um, a really low value strike price, then I'm assuming that it doesn't go down that low. I'm going to make money because it's probably not going to 
follow that much, right? And I just sell puts all day. And I'm like, I sell puts on this and I sell puts on that. And I'm making money every month. And, I, you know, and I'm like, hey, I'm really smart. You know, I, you know, I sold all these puts. All these people bought all these out of the money puts thinking that stuff was going to crash or out of the money calls or that the, the market's going to go way up, right? And then till the day that it does, right? And, you, you know, because as a skeptic, every time you get to play the skeptic and debunk stuff, you get to feel smart, right? Ah, that's that's all bullshit. And you know, you're not thinking critically and you're not this. You get to you get to get all this sort of, you know, I'm the smart guy, and then until you're wrong. And um I, and I think you know, the UFO thing, it's like, I don't think this question is gonna be settled in our lifetimes. <laughs> you know, it's like who knows whatever is gonna happen with this, but let's take the the Wuhan thing, right? So a friend of mine has been playing the skeptic with me. Now I think he's coming along. He's coming. He's he's now he's like oh because I keep sending some articles and it's starting to really shift the other way. So like a month ago, I mean a year ago, it sounded like you're a conspiracy theorist, right? A month ago was still pretty dicey, right? And that article came out in the Bulletin of Atomic Scientists, and I made a really strong case not only on the conflict of interest, but the um, and the funding, but the science itself. And they have Dave Baltimore, who's the ex-president of Caltech and Nobel laureate, who basically said, "Yeah, this stuff is looking really like it could be a lab leak, right? It could be lab engineered." And that's what really switched everybody. So everybody's like, "Really?" You know. Um, so, you know, you. The problem is that um, when you're playing the skeptic all the time, um, then you lose out on opportunities. So it's like it's like if you play the skeptic of anything major happening, like um, you know, let's just say like let's pick something we've talked about a long time, which is like investing in Tesla, right? Tesla's never gonna ah, you know, you play the skeptic like everybody did back in the early days. The car companies are gonna crush, and there's no chance. And then it's like, well, you lost out on making millions of dollars because you're, you know, you're well, too not, smart. Not only that, I'm just looking here that in 2020, the Tesla bears lost 38 billion. The people mm -hmm. who who voted short lost 38 billion. So yeah, it's it's yeah. money. <laughs> yeah, I mean, there's a lot of opportunity, a lot of things that happen where like where there was the hat, where was a dot com crash, the the, the financial crash in 2007-8, You know, things like Tesla blowing up that people were poo pooing. Um, you know, crypto. You know, and um, you know, you could go on and on. The Wuhan thing, the pandemic even happening in the first place, where um, you know, most people were skeptics. They're like, ah, that's you know, and they were wrong. And I remember right before, right before the pandemic happened, when for for the quarantine, I sat down and I talked to this friend of mine. He's a really smart guy, older guy, super successful, super well educated scientifically. And I said three things. <laughs> he thought I was totally, he thought I was so, I was literally like laughing in my face. We're having coffee. <laughs> and I said, Tesla was going to be one of the most valuable car companies in the world, if not, and eventually we'll, we'll assume will be one of the more valuable companies. And he said, that's just totally not going to happen. That <laughs> Tesla is um, totally dependent on government subsidies and all that stuff. <laughs> And I said, I said, and I said, look, I think this, uh, I think this, uh, uh, SARS um, two thing is going to be a really big deal. I think, I think the schools and stuff are going to shut down. He's like, this is just like Zika. Nothing's going to happen. <laughs> you know, he's like literally laughing at me like, like I'm an idiot. 
right? And I said, I don't know. I've already, this is going exponential. And this is back in the early days when there was just like few incidences in like Washington and there's like a cruise ship or a couple of people were sick. And I'd already, ma- I'd already done the calculations. I had the whiteboard out and I was like, this is going to, this is going to blow up fast. This is going exponential. It's even bigger than exponential. It's like super exponential how fast this is going. And he laughed my face. And I said, and I, and I also mentioned crypto, I think it was a third thing. And he's just like, you know, and he kid laughed at my face. And then like, sure enough, it was like each one of them. I turned out to did be he, right. Did he call you up with each one? No. I mean, yeah. I, I almost sent him when the pandemic blew up. <laughs> I almost go, well, that's one for three. And then the Tesla blows up. I'm like, that's two for three. You know? But I was like, yeah. I don't want to be a, I don't want to be a, an asshole or anything. So I just, I never said anything about any of that. Oh, and the third thing, the fourth thing actually was the, um, that advanced computer science class we were doing. And he's like, Jason, there's no way you're going to be able to teach the kids this. There's just no way this is going to happen. That they can't learn all. And then we end up doing not only that, but blowing away what we originally thought we were going to learn. And as the problem is that when you're a skeptic, I mean, look, I, there's nothing wrong with being skeptical when things, when there's not evidence to, to, to not, not sufficient evidence, right? I understand that you need to be skeptical. You need to be, but you have to also be able to use your imagination a little bit and connect some dots. Now, if you go too far ahead and you believe anything's possible, then you're losing money too. So let's, let's put this in the like, sort of like putting market bets on. You're like, everything's going to be a trillion dollar company. You're going to lose all your money right? If you're selling puts all day, you're going to lose all your money. You have to be somewhere in, you got to be careful about picking your bets, especially things you think are going to blow up. But, you know, you have to be willing to not be a skeptical all the time. So it's like, I, I, I try and like, when I see something that like, I think this could be a big deal, I try and do some research into it. I mean, I don't always have the time to do it, but I'm a, I, I, just, know, I get frustrated by people who always play the, fest, the, the, the skeptic because it's, it's really frustrating because I feel like they're playing the, hey, I'm the smart guy here. Okay, I've got, a, I've got a great topic to bring up right yeah. now that I didn't send to you in my link list. Right. But I think this is going to test you. Okay. This is going to test exactly where you are on that scale. Okay. Because it's kind of extreme in a, in a way. Mm-hmm. So have you heard of BitClout? BitClout? BitClout. No. Okay, so BitClout is um, essentially a, a social network, a Twitter competitor, but it's completely blockchain-based. Mm-hmm. So it's a blockchain-based Twitter competitor that, um, I mean, I'm, if, if there's anyone who's, who really knows about this, they're going to say, okay, you didn't explain it exactly right, but I think I'm going to get close. So you join the social network like Twitter, and then when you join this social network, the capability for your your coin, like a, I guess a, you get a coin. So Jason Roberts joins joins BitClout. Now there is the Jason Roberts coin. None of those coins are in existence, but people can buy the Jason Roberts coin. People invest in you as a creator because they believe that you're going to go up and you're going to get more attention on the network. Mm-hmm. And people have to spend real money to invest in you and buy your coins every time they buy your coin it gets minted and they've got a specific calculation that makes it that and this is the part that i it's a math part that you're gonna have to look into for yourselves (laughs) um but somehow by minting more coins the value of the coin goes up and it's a it's a it's a deflationary kind of currency concept the the way that it works 
Um, Deflation means there's a, the, that means the supply of the coins are fixed. So the more people come on, the more valuable they become. There's, inflationary, there's, the inflationary, just to clarify, so inflationary, you can increase the money supply, you know, faster than the uh, the actual um, supply of goods and services. In which case, the money becomes you need more money to buy the same thing. Deflationary meaning it's it's the other way around. So correct. And there's there's for each coin they have. Uh, certain periods where they do what they call a deflation bomb mm -hmm. so where it like you know it it purposefully like raises the price of the coins or something like that mm -hmm. um and so the the whole the the there's a bit clout coin and so everyone gets to to invest in someone's coin you have to spend uh, i believe the bit clout coin is a tethered coin i think um and you have to spend like a one-to-one -one, no actually i'm i think i'm wrong about that that's not it's not tethered but somehow you have to put you have to put actual real money and they map it all to the valuation of real dollars. Even though the BitClout coin can go up and down or whatever, it's mapped to um, real dollars. So the valuation of the Jason Roberts coin can go up and, and can potentially go down. Anyway, the reason why um, I heard about it is because Matteo Mosca, who's the star Nugget pupil, um, <laughs> one of his uh, projects that he did, because um, we, we went through nine iterations of stuff. So one of the things he did was this thing called Pitchwool, um, which was a name that I thought of the name for it. His original name was like Million Dollar Face Video or something like that, right? Okay. But basically, the idea was that you could you could sort of go on this page and and pitch your startup. And mm -hmm. so there's um, you know like 20 people who have pitched their startup on Pitchwall. And when he saw BitCloud, he got interested in it. He um, created a, an account called Pitchwall, and he tried to get the other people who were doing their different things to pitch on Pitchwall. And anyway, he has he his coin his pitchwall coin has now has a market cap of actually invested forty thousand U.S. dollars. Wow, which is quite interesting and insane. Now that's the one thing. So he's he was telling me about a guy who invested sixteen thousand dollars. He's he's now speaking to them. This guy put sixteen thousand actual real money into buying a coin against his profile, but at the same time. The reason why he's managed to grow his following so high is because he gives away free diamonds on the system that has diamonds. And the diamonds equate to real money using their thing, but they're worth about one cent each. Mm -hmm. So we're talking about a system where people are spending 16000 on a on a, a profile coin, A, and B, they're, they're following someone for one cent. So it's like, it's very strange. Oh, okay. so, it's so very the, strange dynamics. So his coin for his startup is part of this, would you call it BitClout? BitClout, yeah. So, it's just, so, so you have like individual currencies? Is that, what, is that, is that how it works? Each, yeah, well, it, so, Each participant so bit, has their own sort of segmented currency or something. Exactly, yeah. Okay. So, and what they're trying to do is pull people over to this new graph from Twitter. Is yes. that right? And yes, so, I believe so. Yeah. But what does that have to do with people doing? I'm, 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 I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm hard, I'm having a hard time um, putting the pieces together where you have like a startup getting invested in, or it's not a startup. Okay, so, so this is. I think I had, I had a similar problem um, understanding it. Let I me mean, just, just send his you. His profile has it because people think his. It's profile just, is the, gonna it's just the profile. So it's, it's just you as a creator. So let me just um. I'm going to actually take so if you look at the link there in the chat you can okay. you can look at his the pitch wall profile so you all can right, see well, this all well i so you know let's just let's just talk about it because I, I don't think people are going to otherwise they're going to understand so um 
so what so your question is do i think bitclout has a future i do, do I think you should, do me a favor just do click that link so so that you can quickly get a, a general um assessment because i think a picture's worth a thousand words the thing that i'm asking you is do, do like are you um well i think about 150,000 people have joined this social network so far mm-hmm. it's a completely decentralized social network mm-hmm. um do you think that this that this in three years time is going to be like just giant just a huge concept uh so here's here's i think the way i would think about things which i think is a little different than how you think about things a lot of times you'll be like this is going to be huge or not i think in turn i would think in terms of bets right probabilities i would say there's a chance like sometimes kind of ridiculous ideas that seem on the surface kind of kind of weird, you know, or kind of maybe even kind of ridiculous turn out to be a huge deal. You know, we, whether it was Tesla or Facebook or Twitter, Twitter itself or yeah, anything. Yeah. A lot of these things people look down and they're like, this is just dumb, mm-hmm. right? Why does anyone need this? Um, and that stuff happens all the time. Now, they're probably dwarfed by the number of, of startup ideas that truly are stupid and never mm-hmm. really catch up. So it's, sometimes it's kind of hard to tell. Um, so there's always a there's always a, a chance. And I think, but a lot of these payoffs are asymmetric. So it's like, you know, when Bitcoin first came out, if you had come on and say, hey, you know, what? I'll buy a couple hundred dollars worth, what the hell, right? And just sat on mm. it, then you'd be worth, you'd be practically a billionaire now, right? Yeah, right. Or, yeah. Million, hundreds of millions or something. Um, so I think, I think people having seen how things, whether it's cryptocurrencies or startups, have gone from nascent, ridiculous idea to world changing thing. And they see this stuff happens fast, like in a matter of like a couple years to six or seven years. And people, I think people are saying, well, you know, I think I might put some money into this, like NFTs. Now, NFTs have recently crashed, and it may mm-hmm. be one of these things as an example of, you know, not every crazy idea that starts to get pick up steam is going to go all the way. You know, maybe NFTs die and then come back again in, yeah. you know, a year and a half from now or whatever. Um, so I think, I think what sort of, I think the sort of the savvy thing to do is to spread your bets around on things that look like they have, um, some of the elements of, of something that could go big. And it's like, you know, if I just put in a little bit of money into this, whether it's a hundred dollars or a thousand dollars or 5,000, I mean, 16,000 sounds like a lot of money, but um, it sounds like some guy who probably missed out in the crypto is like, all right, I'm not missing out this time. <laughs> Damn it. You know, <laughs> I mean, that sounds a little, a little much, but what you can always do is, is, is bet on these things in a small scale early on. And if it starts to pick up a little more steam, then you, buy in a little more later, which is what venture capitalists do, right? They put some money in the seed round, they might put some money in the A round, the B round. I mean, they, they keep putting more money, but they're not going to put all their money in the seed round because the probability is really low, right? But if they wait entire, too late in the round, they don't get the multiples. So it's nice to kind of like, hey, yeah, I mean, we make a thousand X or a hundred X on that seed round, but we can still make... 20x on the A round, and we can still make 5x on the B round. Like it's still good money to put in, right? That's still a really good bet. The probability is 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 higher, you know, of the success. We're not going to get the same payoff, but we just, it's still an asymmetric bet. We can make a lot of money. So I don't know. I mean, it's like a lot of this stuff. You know, I would go maybe. You know, I I you know I'm not as um 
I'm not as into the uh, the crypto stuff, the blockchain stuff, as a lot of people. It's not because I don't like it or anything. It's just it isn't as, as interesting to me. I mean, a lot of people are really just really excited about distributed ledgers and stuff, and there seem to be some possible applications that could that make a big deal. And I'm just not. I'm not. I'm not. Uh, saying it won't happen i'm not but i'm also not like this blockchain is gonna take over the world you know i i don't know i might put a little bit of money in here and there and i could see it happening but i also could see it not happening i mean the the part that i find a bit hard to grapple with in my head and i think you'll you've touched on it there is the idea that it's it's more like an index than a than a than a real thing it's like it's just an index of the of the creator so i don't really understand how the value is is pegged to something because there isn't anything to peg it to. It's just a, it's just a profile. So I think the idea is if this thing starts to gain a little bit of steam and you get some early creators come on to it and, um, and then what happens is, is that they themselves, I guess, have some ownership of their own currency, right? Well, yes, just, just to interrupt. So that's the point you, when you create your profile, you buy your coins before it gets a chance to go up. So you want to try and buy, you know, as right. many as your coins as you can on the so outset. There's, so there's an in, there's a financial incentive for people to try and get other people into it, right? Yeah. And uh, which you know, just like it's it's like a financial incentive for people to get an Instagram. If you're a if you're a creator or an influencer or celebrity of some kind, and you get a, and you got an Instagram in the early days, you're like hoping to get more people on Instagram and more people to follow you, right? Mm -hmm. But um, this is, this, I guess, creates a more direct way to monetize your, you know, um, your celebrity or whatever. And if you have, you know, 10,000, a hundred thousand followers, I mean, it's kind of hard to say how you really monetize that on Twitter, unless it's, you know, integrated with some other stuff that you're doing. Um, but maybe this is a way to, they did an interesting hack as well, a growth hack. Yeah, so what I was saying is, is that when they launched their app, I th actually, just reading a little bit more about it, they essentially reserved a space for everyone on Twitter to have an account on BitCloud. Mm -hmm. okay. so, you could, so you could claim your account. So for example, um, Elon Musk, who hasn't claimed his account right now, but if he does claim his account, there will already be um, value in the system for him of the BitCloud okay. uh, coins. So he already would have a coin. Uh, let me see. I think every coin of his is worth five fifty-three thousand. If I'm reading this right. Um, wow. Yeah. But uh, yeah. So anyway, it's an interesting system. Um, if anyone does join BitClout, the one number one thing to do is if you do join it and you have any in interest in going f uh, moving forward with it, don't make the mistake that uh, Matteo made, which was he did not buy his own coin before he started promoting it. <laughs> so he started promoting it. People started buying his coin and all of a sudden his coin started going up and he's like, whoa, 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 hold on a second, guys. Hold on a second. So then he had to buy his coin at like a more expensive price than he otherwise would. <laughs> That's kind of an idiot move. It's <laughs> a rookie mistake, right? That's the number one mistake. Rook. Come on, rookie. Yeah, like, <laughs> come on. Jeez. Okay, well, yeah. you know, we've all made mistakes. Maybe not that exact mistake, we've made some bad ones. But um, yeah. So right. so you are so you're not you're you're not a skeptic you're just a spread bet you're like a you yeah. don't have a position to take you're just yeah. I you know I I I might go I might put a little bit into it I might say ah, I'll put a couple hundred dollars 
You know, who yeah. knows? So if it goes, I, I won't. Are you going to create that, a profile on it? Are you going to be Jason Roberts on BitCloud? I don't know. I mean, there's so many of these things that you can create profiles on. So you, I don't know. I'd, I'd have to look at it a little bit more, but I might. All right. I might. Are you, okay. you're, are you, you're big on this? I no, I wouldn't say I'm big on it, but um, I'm, if you were, I'd be selling. That's I'm I'm like I'm um. <laughs> if you're I'm, buying, I'm, I'm selling, Justin. I'm like <laughs> so true, so true. Always, I'm like no, I'm like tentatively um interested in it. Um, I do think that we should have a morning brief Bitcoin and Bitcloud uh account and just test it out. But what I will say is, this this whole Bitcloud thing makes me feel old for the first time you know you know like how when you're younger and you sort of see something in you you're like yeah yeah i got it you know like you're sort of excited about it or whatever mm-hmm. like this i'm just like oh man are they, are they just trying to like create like the world's best legal ponzi scheme here i mean well is there's this... a ton of that stuff and you know <laughs> you know it's like we've seen a lot of crypto stuff blow up and become and make people a lot of money we've seen a lot of it just crash and burn mm-hmm. right i mean it's kind of wild west man and... i sold out of my omg at just the right time oh my gosh Did you? Yeah, I, I sold out of all that OMG, and and I, I told you about this, right? Didn't I? Didn't we talk about it on the yeah, show? Yeah, then you kind of. How much did you you just say? It? Well, I don't remember. I basically I lost half of it, but okay. but if if I hadn't, we'd be right back down to like losing practically all of it. I it sold it down just like the nothing? right time. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Well, good for you. Mm. All right. So moving on, you got some. You got a bunch of other links. Yeah. Here. Sure. Um, let's see what else we got. Well, I guess it's a kind of a segue, but. Um, Bitcoin investors are growing weary of Elon Musk's tiresome tweets about yeah, Bitcoin. Well, he's he'd... he's like for Bitcoin. He's against Bitcoin. He's for Bitcoin. He's against. And I, you know, I, you have to wonder like, is he basically selling the highs and buying the dips, and he's just basically making the market and doing it, doing that on purpose? I mean, he what's probably going? could. I don't think he has time to worry about that kind of yeah, right, stuff too much. Right. You know, would be my guess. I doubt he's buying and selling a whole lot of Bitcoin. I mean, he's whatever the richest or second richest guy in the world i mean you know and, and he's he's done all that by most by staying focused on uh, on what he on what he's really trying to do with tesla and, and it's true i mean i couldn't imagine know. him doing that but um i mean i don't like he does man he's got he knows how to upset people doesn't he yeah he does he said some he's and that's the thing about him you know i mean he, he back about six years ago or so he was he had a pretty clean image you know he was just like this you know plucky nerdy startup guy you know who did this amazing with rockets and Tesla. but then he started some of his tweets started to become pretty controversial when he attacked that cave diver that was probably yeah, not the pedo, the pedo guy. guy that was probably not a, a good move I mean, he could have played that completely differently you know some of the stuff with the the sec and the and the pot reference and i mean there was just like some dumb it was just just being sort of reckless you know and then some of the stuff i think stuff that we really got him on the bad side of a lot of people was the uh you know calling the pandemic you know kind of people being silly and this yeah. is all really dumb the and masks. it's like you know i mean i, I was know. surprised i was like when he did that there was some hack and use comments where you know people were saying well, man i used to be a believer in in tesla and ever and the elon musk mission and now i'm never going to buy or touch any product from him again yeah but the thing is it's it's like the reality is when people get really sort of politically offended by this stuff it doesn't it usually isn't enough people to affect the company it really doesn't matter typically mm-hmm. i mean um but i i don't know i mean I, I i think the reason he does stuff like that is you know it's probably stuff that he thinks 
And um, there's a lot of stuff that a lot of us think that we probably shouldn't be broadcasting the minute we think it on Twitter. Right. We're like, eh, you know, um, and, the, you know, when you become super successful, you don't have enough people in your life telling you you're full of shit. You know, that's the thing. You know, you don't have, you know, that's, you know, whether you're Michael Jackson or Prince or Elon Musk or whatever, you don't have people going, you know what, I think that was a really dumb idea, you know, and you just become, your whole, your whole world perspective just becomes a little distorted. And then you just make life harder on yourself because you have a lot of the people, you have more and more people sort of rooting for you to go down, you know? Yeah. And it sucks as as well to have been like a kind of you know, like a, a big fan, as it were, to be a sort of a big believer. And then it's not that you stop believing. It's just like, it just makes you feel a bit um, disappointed. Well, you have to put, you have to put a caveat there, but that's why it's like, you, you don't want to have any idols or something, right? You don't, because people have flaws. And, and if you say, oh, well, I'm a huge fan of X. And once X does some things or says some things that you don't agree with, does that mean you support those things or not? Right. And you can say, well, I'm really impressed with what he's done with Tesla and in Starlink and SpaceX or whatever. And I think, you know, he's obviously a very bright, very motivated, tenacious guy. And the stuff is all awesome. But he's he you know, he's obviously done some things and said some things that are probably not great. You know, and I, that's why that's why I don't. Uh, you know, look up to anyone and go, oh, this person is unbelievable because everybody has, everybody has flaws. But yeah. Yeah. So, um, yeah, no, I know we're kind of running out of time, so I want to kind of get on to the next. Okay. Next thing. Which, what else you got? Do you anything else? Oh, I mean, I, I can keep on going. I mean, um, I, got some, I got some updates and some stuff. Yeah, no, I want to hear. Let's, let's hear. Let's hear. Um, well, so we're working really hard on the, uh, on the diagnostic test. So um, one of the things that I think is the, the one of the big pushes we've made over the last couple of weeks is, is so like, let's say they're coming into a course like calculus. And rather than say, just saying like, well, do you know some calculus or not? It's really a question of like, how prepared are you for taking calculus? Like, where are your where are your weaknesses? What do you not know that you should know? And the, and the as my math teacher in high school used to say he's like the the hardest thing about calculus is the pre-calculus you forgot (laughs) you know and if you can identify those holes and remediate them then calculus is much more straightforward and and that even goes for classes lower down where you're talking about algebra 2 or algebra or whatever and or even or further on up differential equations multivariable calculus it's like they all have some number of prerequisites that the course is going to assume that you know, but in reality, a lot of times the students don't know or don't know well enough or have forgotten, right? But uh, so we've so we've been working on this diagnostic that we think we'll be able to converge based on our preliminary tests in like 10 to 15 questions. So like I can give you a 10, 15 question test and I can, you know, determine all your potential weakness exactly where you are in this gigantic graph. So for instance, for calculus, you know, we have a, we have a, a graph of a graph, meaning like each topic has one or more prerequisites and they're all linked up in sort of a, a bunch of nodes. Right. And, you know, we have, I don't know, something on the, going on 23, 2400 nodes in this graph mm. from fifth wow. grade, you know, from like very elementary 
you know, kind of math that a nine, nine or 10 year old would do up through, you know, you know, you know, university stuff like abstract algebra and differential equations. And, um, so when we take calculus, and what we can do is we can create all, we, we look at all the prerequisites for calculus, because not everything you do before is relevant to calculus, right? So like a pre, some pre-calculus topics that are pretty standard would be like prob some probability, some statistics, some matrices, combinatorics, none of that stuff is relevant to calculus, but it is further down in the in the graph mm. and in and in, in the learning sequence and and and, and schooling. So, but what we do is we go through and we go we we backtrack through and we build out you know the 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 sequence of uh, prerequisites. And so we have I think it's roughly on the order of 900 nodes from 5th grade up through calculus. Calculus itself has like 250 nodes. And all we have to do is ask you approximately just an, approximately what you think your knowledge is. You know, we say five DRs, you're very solid, solid, you know, kind of so-so, weak or very weak. So you get to kind of give us just a sense of what, what your level of your, of your knowledge is, right? And then we go in and we sort of try and detect how accurate that is. And then we can classify, you have a, just a very rough approximation of, of what level of student you are or what level your knowledge is. And then we can go in and, and in roughly 10 or 12 questions, we can converge on very high accuracy of what exactly you know and don't know what your knowledge frontier is which so is pretty awesome that's very that's that sounds very cool um you made me think of one one quick question there um if you if statistics isn't required for calculus mm -hmm. then why is it a prerequisite um well it's not a do you mean why is it taught in school earlier no, I mean, like, so you, th well, the way that you said it there, it sounded like, it sounded like s that you said there's some things that are not required for calculus, but are, are, are prerequisites. Yeah. Okay. So I was trying to understand. So like, why, why would they teach statistics if it's not actually required for calculus? Like why even go through it? Okay. So, um, there are things that are taught earlier in high school that are good to know that are not necessarily useful in calculus. Now, calculus may be the most advanced, typically the most advanced course that would be taught in a high school, because it's, it's actually a college course that is taught as, an, as, a, as a sort of advanced placement course in high, in, in high schools. Um, it's, and so it's, yeah, you have, there's, it, 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 it requires that you know a lot of algebra and geometry and trigonometry and, you know, some other things, but it, it can't take in everything that you were taught earlier in ninth, 10th, 11th grade, that is actually useful to know, right? It is useful to know combinations and permutations. You know, if I have, you know, five cards, how many different ways can I order them? You know, like that's, you know, or if I want to, if I have certain types of things about statistics, probably these are good things to know, but they're just not relevant in calculus. Does that make sense? But yes, it does make sense, except what it, what you made it sound like is in your prerequisite tree it's going to it's going to basically say okay you've got to do statistics before you can do this calculus no course. no so what i'm saying is it does not include it built, it takes the entire it basically what it does is says here are all the calculus topics and then it works backward to the prerequisites for those topics prerequisites for those topics you know backward tree so it does not include things like statistics and oh okay got it. those yeah. things are not included cool. so if you said if you'd like say well my goal is to take calculus right now my goal is not to know everything that was taught in high school. I just need to I just need to get ready to take this course and be successful in it. Then it'll say, okay, well, it turns out you really need to know 
the double angle formula. You really need to know parametric equations. You need a polar coordinate. Like, you know, you need to know these things for the BC calculus course. And, you know, there's a good chance you don't. <laughs> so let's go, yeah. and, let's go and look into these things. Um, mm -hmm. But, but um, you know, it's interesting. I actually, um, William asked, that was one of his questions. He says, he says, he was basically said, well, like, the, the, the knowledge graph sounds really interesting. Has anyone else done this before? The only company or uh, that I've seen that has really tried to do this at any scale was something called Alex, A-L-E-K-S. And they came out of UC Irvine in the late 90s. Some kind, I think it was like they were funded by some government research and they spun out a company and, and, and they would do basically diagnostic testing for the most part. And it didn't go up to calculus. It was mostly like algebra, pre-algebra, algebra up to like maybe algebra two kind of stuff. Um, and they were their entire graph of all of the knowledge that they studied was 108 topics. Wow. So, you know, like I said, just, just their stuff that feeds into calculus, including calculus is not over 900. <laughs> so we're at a much finer, finer grain than they am. Plus we go much, much further. We go calculus and then much further than calculus. Uh, also there's based on the, on the paper, we were just looking at this the other day cause I, we were talking about it and we, and, and I had, um, Justin, who is the one working with me on this, to he went and looked it up and he said that they would converge, they would typically be able to converge on 108 topics, 108 nodes in 40 questions. Well, we can converge on, you know, in this case, over 900 in like 10 questions, or 10 to, 10 to 15, 15 to tops which is pretty cool. And their, their whole, whole technique they, they describe, because we actually experimented with doing something like that, and it just doesn't scale. Like it, it, all, it doesn't scale well beyond like 100 topics. It just becomes impossible to do. And so we had to come up with a completely different approach, which turns out works a lot better, which is really cool. The problem is, you know, it's like as cool as this stuff is, it's like I can't really talk about it because it's part of our magic sauce, right? It's right, like it'd be yeah. great to write a do a big write up on this because it's so is so I think it's so cool, but you know probably won't for a long time. If we do, it will be maybe after it becomes even more sophisticated. We have just data from tens or hundreds of thousands of students feeding into it, and it's taken it to you know even a whole another level. In which case, it's like people couldn't couldn't reproduce it anyway because they just don't have the data. Mm -hmm. Right. I mean, uh, that, that, yeah, I've been thinking the same thing. Like the, you know, there 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 becomes a point. There's so many with morning brief. Just myself and Joe in our discussion. You know, in the first place, it's it's kind of a simple idea. But then the the more you work on it, then there's more of these incremental updates, and then it's just like, well, once you've got a thousand incremental updates, it's going to be that's a moat at that point. You know what I mean? Yeah. So that's what you're dealing with. Yeah. You got yeah. a moat. So, so yeah, we want to get the moat and. You know, the reality is, is, is even if we wrote some kind of like thing on the web, kind of like how, you know, OpenAI or DeepMind does, it's like the people that would read that and think that would be cool, there'd only be a small percentage of those people who'd be like, oh, you know, turns out my kid is, needs some advanced math. This is really neat. You know, like yeah. it, it, it would, it would drive some traffic to us and it would give us some authority and some credibility. But I think there's other things we can talk about that wouldn't say, you know. It could create any. It wouldn't. It wouldn't. Wouldn't uh, dissolve or any of our competitive advantage. Are you any closer or to erode, starting? I would say eroding our competitive advantage. Sorry. Any closer to starting your content marketing efforts? Not yet. I'm not really. You know, it's funny. I'm. 
I'm just I want to just focus on getting the um the product done. I just I think that I, I the more the more I was reading about it and thinking about it, the more I just realized it's like if you if you just focus on creating a great product and you focus on really hitting pro- product market fit with those first 10 users and 100 users, that's when you need to worry about the other stuff. I you know, it's funny I I mean, I, I I think maybe for certain products that are not sort of big problems, maybe you really have to do heavy marketing. But I think if you have, if you're going after a real, a big problem that people actually really care about, I don't think you have to push as hard on marketing. I think you probably have to focus more on just creating a great product. And then, and then the word of mouth will work in your favor. Now, not that you won't have to do any marketing, but. Well, there is you, a caveat there that, um, you know, you have, you have the, the resources to do that. You mm-hmm. have the money to do that. Mm-hmm. So if you didn't have the money to do that, like in our case, mm-hmm. then you need to do some kind of marketing. You need to find a way to get the money, when, and that's going to be, I guess, through some kind of marketing yeah. promotion or yeah. something like that. But I, I just don't want to get distracted with that right now. I, I mean, I really, we just, I just got to finish things up, you know. And it's getting, getting really close. Um, two weeks away. Two weeks. <laughs> yeah, two weeks. Not two weeks. <laughs> um, you know, but the, I will, I we will be launching stuff over the summer. Okay. Uh, you know, and mostly probably towards the end of the summer for the school year. Um, one of the things I, what I was starting to think, what I wanted to do, we won't do it right away, but is, um, is integrating like uh, coding exercises in the system. So it's funny, there was this um, thing that popped up in Hacker News. It was Peter Norvig, who's the big AI guru over at, at, um, at Google. And he, he's, you know, I think he was, I think he was a professor at uh, Stanford. And, and AI. Anyway, he um he wrote this um or he had this uh, it was almost like a GitHub or something. It was it was called like it was like a concrete introduction of probability and basically you learn probability by writing lots of Python programs. And yeah. I thought, you know, that would be really cool is once you've done the basic exercises to understand to be able to do the problems by hand, then you write like a a, a you know and a Python program to do it mm-hmm. so i think for a lot of a lot of students that would really bring it alive right so one thing we're trying to do is you know i mean the first part is to get all of the content in the system and have all the questions on all the lessons and all this all that built out and then you can start laying on the the sort of um it's the more enriching kind of stuff which which is like the um you know one thing where i've told you about is being able to do proofs Right, the drag and drop thing. Another yeah. thing is be able to do compu- be able to write code to solve problems, and another will be these multi-step free response problems. So we'll layer that stuff on. Now, now if you do that stuff without the without the sort of the the base foundation, then they're really just sort of for enrichment, right? Because you don't have enough there for students to learn everything as they need to learn it. Um, but if you don't have that stuff at all, then it can be a little dry. So, but you really kind of want it all together, but you need to have, in my view, you need to have the um, the core the core content in place. How many lines of uh, of good code do you think you got in your system? Oh, I don't know, like many hundreds of thousands. I mean, it's massive. There's a lot. This is what very... are the functional areas? Like, what, what if, if you could just sort of modular modularize the architecture of the code? What are the sort of the ten buckets? Oh Jesus! I don't know. I don't even know how to answer that question. I mean, I I would I, I certainly couldn't answer it in a way that would be interesting. I mean, okay. I don't think. I mean, it's just 
you know, there's, you know, we could talk about what it means to create um, an assignment for a student or rather like, what do they do next? How do we figure out what you're doing next? Right. What have you done? What do you need to review? You know, how well do you know stuff? Like all the sort of calculations and the database work that has to be done to just figure out all that kind of stuff. Is this one is more of the code written for the editors or for the students? Which is the lot, which is, where's there more, more code, more of your time gone into? Mm, God, I, you know, I don't even know. There's so much <laughs> of both. It's hard to tell a lot of both. Um, you know, in fact, what I've been working on for the last like two months is, is building out, you know, the whole pla- the whole content management system for doing free response questions. And yeah. that has to go with, see, the thing is we get so many questions now. So an individual lesson, so we call like a node, we have like, say, 2,500. Each one of those is broken down into like three to five or six knowledge points. And each of those knowledge points has like a kind of introduction and then like worked out example and then like 10 or so fully worked out questions for doing on assignments. And we need to expand that to probably like 30 or something, right? And I want like half of those to be free response, right? And the problem is when you're creating that many questions, you need to have a way of, of organizing them. So you, need, you have to way of, of organizing those questions and, and, and creating, grouping them so that, you know, do we have enough that ask the question in this way versus ask it in that way or, or whatever. And, you know, because when I was talking to Alex, who's, who runs content for me, and I you know, was talking about, like, we got we to gotta add in a lot of free response questions and we need to increase the number of questions so the students can, if they need more practice, they can do it and that kind of thing. And he's like, he's like, man, we got to have a way of organizing this stuff better or grouping it because I just can't, I can't. I'm not comfortable saying, hey, we need five or 10 more like this until I can tell our content editors, like, look, you know, this group needs this many, this group needs this many, you know, that kind of thing. So that has been a big development effort because the UI stuff and because there's so much to it and there's, and, uh, and then the, then the whole free response stuff. So it's like, you know, all the engine for evaluating free response stuff and typing a WYSIWYG um, for uh, math equations, or, you know, it can be just, it can be an equation, it can be an expression, it could be a matrix, it could be all this kind of stuff. And so not only be able to type that in as a student and it look like real, like a, like an equation, right. But then being able to take that and evaluate that and determine is this the is this the correct answer is it equivalent or at least is it is it numerically equivalent to the correct answer all that kind of stuff I mean these are all non-trivial you know efforts do you do you find yourself um, refactoring a lot or like so you sort of do your first thought about it you build it and and then do you refactor or is there a lot of the code base where it's like yeah that I got it right the first time um you know, it kind of depends on what I'm working on. Sometimes I just have to get something working, you know, sometimes it's just yeah. fixing stuff. It's just like, okay, good enough. And sometimes I go back and I do a lot of refactoring, you know, with stuff that I'm building from scratch, you know, I'll, I'll go through more of that process. If it's stuff that had been written by, you know, this, that other the coder, collective. Yeah, C-Vod <laughs> collective and, you know, and it's a gigantic mess and I go in there and I go, okay, let me see, what can I do here? I don't want to <laughs> blow this thing up, you know? So a lot of times I'm careful with it. Sometimes I rewrite it and sometimes I'm like, well, okay, let's just refactor a little bit of this. That's good enough for now. I got to move on, you know, because mm-hmm. I can't, because it's like pulling a thread out of a sweater, you know, it just, yeah, yeah. it just would go on forever, you know, and then I break 15 things and it's just like, you know, it's just not worth it right now. I mean, I'll be doing more of that over the summer because the school year just ended. Um, you know, in school, year, you're always, I'm always worried in the school year that I'm going to blow things up, you know, when a lot of kids are using it. 
Maybe but... turn your video off just so that we can hear each other at least. Okay. Yeah. So at least then we've got good, um, you know, because yeah. it's going to be perfect what's recorded, but it's just can we hear each other is the issue. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, I'm, I'm honestly fascinated about the internals of mm -hmm. what you've done. Mm -hmm. um, I, I don't know. I'd love to have a look at it one day, but uh, I just find it interesting. I'll have to have you, have to have you sign a bunch of legal documents probably. <laughs> <laughs> sure. Well, okay. some of it you'd go, that's really cool. And some of you go like, oh, yikes, who wrote that? And I'll be like, yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, yeah. I mean, no, Node is also, I mean, you've, you've, you've probably like nailed it down, but like the small amount of Node that I've done, I found it kind of interesting. Um, the... I guess the asynchronous nature of it, just dealing with that was tough. Yeah, well, um, now with now with the async await stuff built into it, it's it's way easier because now okay. you can write it in a synchronous fashion and it's dealt with okay. in an asynchronous way. Okay. Um, unlike back, you know, five, six years ago or whatever it was. Back when, when you were making, when you were building Uber. Yeah, yeah well, that was longer ago. That was <laughs> 10 years ago, you know? Right. I mean, um, and it was, uh, you know, callbacks and then callbacks and then callbacks. It got to be kind of painful. Um, but... You know, I mean, now with now they have like classes and they have the arrow functions and they got they have so much stuff that just makes the it cleans it up. You know, the the sort of semantics of it. Um, yeah. So finally, they've caught up with PHP. Cool. Yeah, right. <laughs> exactly. Um, so, oh, you know, speaking of of cool things in code, um, you know, so one of. You know, in terms of developing these these diagnostic these algorithms to to, to do the diagnostic on the graphs, um, you know, Justin has been writing um, you know these grid searches to find to find these optimal parameters to do this stuff on. And um, the thing is, he's written everything in Python, and it got up to he's like, well, you know, this grid search is going to take like four hours because he was like, you know, we had we needed to add this uh, this third parameter, and instead of taking you know thirty minutes, now it's going to four hours at a minimum or something like that or two hours or whatever it was and i was just like jesus like okay but we got to figure a way to speed this thing up and i looked up and i found there's this something called number which you know and i and this guy wrote this um blog post where he kind of did a um to sort of a speed test for like python versus python and numpy plus you know or python and number and then ultimately against julia so python with number with number is basically you just import this library and it just does like a just-in-time compilation of python mm. you don't yeah. have to do anything else it's not like scython where you have to do all this all these annotations and and stuff it ran 400 times faster Jeez. With, it was doing a monte carlo um i think it was doing some kind of monte carlo approximation of like pi or something like that and it was 10 times fast it was 400 times faster than than interpreted python it was wow. 10 times faster than Python plus NumPy. But then when he converted into Julia, Julia was still three times faster than that. Wow. Which is really cool. Because one thing I was talking about doing is, because I, I, he, he, he was going to, you know, when you're writing all this experimental code, it can quickly become a mess. So he spent a couple of days just sort of rewriting it, refactoring everything. And I said, all right, once you refactor it, I said, we will take the, you know, I think there was like somewhere between 500 and 1,000 lines that we would need to convert um, that just for the grid search stuff, uh, and we convert that to Julia. Um, but it turns out with you know with Numba that might be that might be fast enough where you could still run the thing in like I don't know five or ten minutes or 
20 minutes yeah, or something. Yeah, that sounds good. But I was like, sh- I was like, I was also, I was kind of disappointed when he's like, I don't think we're going to need it now. Cause I think, you know, with the, we, we, we know we have, we don't need this other parameter and da da da, you know, and also the number stuff it makes it really fast. I'm like, ah, I kind of want to just write it just to see, you know, it's like so fun to run these tests. Have you ever done that where you like write it in a couple different languages to see what the speed difference is, the performance improvement? I haven't, I haven't done that specifically. Yeah, because you live, work mostly in Python, on PHP, right? So you don't spend a lot of time jumping between languages. You do Just PHP, and... JavaScript, um, right. and I guess Salt as the as the orchestration software. Which, by the way, we've been do- we've been doing a lot of um, with with. I've been working a lot of recently, mm-hmm. and um, yeah, I'm, I think I'm ready to move to to, to the Docker stuff. Um, not going to do it right now, but it's definitely it's definitely on my horizon as being my next big Docker is of... your next Dave. Yeah. That just containers, basically. Um, I just think it's. I think it's. I think ultimately it's going to be a smarter way to go. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, well, that's been you know it's been kind of a big deal for a while now. I mean, I guess that really picked up speed about three or four years ago, right? Like, was everybody was going Docker, Docker crazy, Docker crazy, right? And Kubernetes. Well, there's a, and you can this. jump on board too soon, and then you kind of suffer. suffer. <laughs> right. <laughs> you <Right>. suffer <laughs> to the fact that like you know it breaks because they they push out an update and it breaks everything. But uh, right, yeah. right. Um. Yeah. So. Um, well, anyway, if if you're a Python guy, I mean, you may already know about it, but Numba looks really impressive. Um, looks so, does it just does it speed up Python? Everything about Python, uh, or is I it just num- it's just numerical uh, computation? Uh, I don't think it's just numerical combina- computations. I mean, it's probably you know because it compiles it right. So anything you know, I think it probably speeds up a lot of stuff. Um, you know, it, numeric things might benefit more. You know, but I haven't personally tested it. Um, I just read through a couple articles on it and this one guy's blog post, which was pretty interesting. Um, so I don't really, I don't really know, but it's got it. So cool. yeah, I see what I see. What's going? Yeah, yeah, got it. So it's sort of it's like it's like the um, the PHP FPM kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. Okay, cool. And um, yeah, because we're we're about right out of time, aren't we? About uh, yeah, probably got a, like say 10 five ten minutes yeah oh i one thing i want to go back to i don't want to we don't have to talk about in detail or anything but there was a great article in vanity fair about the lab leak theory i mean it's it's a it's like an hour long read it is but it is amazing um they how in depth they went on stuff they didn't cover get it too into the science unlike the um the original article that i linked to from the uh, bolton atomic scientist which does more of that but it um it really gets into like all the stuff that was going on in the government and people who all the conflicting, you know, people not wanting to talk about it or the political pressure not to talk about it or not to investigate it. And it's, it's really fascinating. But again, it's like an hour long read. It's funny because I had uh, um, Vitols, who's been a long time listener. Do you remember Vitol from um, from the Texing Summit? Years ago. Yeah, yeah, of yeah. Course. He, he runs, he's like the CTO for uh, say like Baltic Air or something. Yeah. And, um, or I, yeah, one of the, one of the um, airlines and he um, he said he read the one that I the initial one he's like man it took me an hour to read that thing <laughs> I was like yeah it's like I said, that's why like none of my friends have read it like I've sent it to like five or six people and everybody's like well <laughs> I was like well that's why no one understands what's going on because there's too much detail there's just too yeah, much to too it. much information people are just like can you just give me the TLDR <laughs> you know and then this and then um, on, I guess it was 
two days ago, the Vanity Fair was came out, and I read the, the Vanity Fair article, and again, it was another hour-long thing. But for me, it was fascinating. Um, but it's funny. I was like, this is also something no one's going to read because it takes like an hour to read it. Nobody has the patience anymore. But yeah, I think cool. I think I think. I think this is fascinating and a really important story because it, it it puts a spotlight on how easy it is to get stuff wrong and when things get politicized, right? It's like any discussion that it was that it, it that it came from a lab leak was immediately equated with shut with, down. With, with well, Trump, we, it with, with BS from Trump. Because Trump, because Trump politicized it, yeah, right? And so therefore, everyone in the, in the center and center left was immediately like against that idea because Trump said it. So if anything Trump says is, is wrong, right? And he lied like with a velocity unseen <laughs> in recent history. So it's like, it's, it's, it's easy to dismiss anything he says, but you should assign no signal instead of an anti-signal, right? But the but the problem yeah. was is that is then no everybody shut their brains down nobody would look into it and then what was interesting is that it just shows you how easy it is to manipulate um, a story from if you get some of the experts inside sort of colluding to say hey we need to shut this down and you get a bunch of people to write you know a, a letter or sign something that says oh this is not real right I mean completely but and and um, talking about Trump I mean. It was a bill that he he signed, I believe, that was responsible for this um, freedom of information about the UFO stuff that's coming out right now. Mm -hmm. So, like, he wasn't, you know, like... I don't think... I I doubt he had anything to do with it. I think it was just part of a bill he signed. It's just just like part of a bill. I I don't know if I'd give him any credit for it. He probably wasn't even aware of it, really. Um, Maybe he was, maybe he wasn't. But, you know, it was just sort of thrown in in some big appropriations bill or something, right? But there's there's another piece about this Wuhan thing that we haven't really discussed, which is just the fact of, like, I don't know, if you're messing around with this stuff, you know, you need to, you need to know what you're doing, you know? Well, yeah, I guess that's another bit. I mean, there's a lot of important things to talk about this. I mean, there's the, the, the how, 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 you know, like the politicization of science and how people become biased and aren't willing to look at things and that allow, causes them to get stuff wrong. But then there's also this whole gain of function research is really uh, on, on on human pathogens is hugely dangerous very right? very very it's dangerous. like it's like experiment plutonium but worse because like this has caused more damage to the country to the world more people have died than anything we've done with you know any of the nuclear accidents that have happened in the last 50 or 75 years but right? it could have been i mean it, it could have been worse i mean that's the thing in, in, a, way worse. in a sense we're like i hate to say this but of that type of thing that might leak out of a lab like that. That was like, like the most innocuous, just yes, one exactly. of the more innocuous things. Yeah, if it was like yes. the H1N1, <laughs> we would have been absolutely screwed um, if it had this, you know. So anyway, so, um, yeah, because, you know, I, I don't know. I mean, you we we talked about this like eight years ago or nine years ago when they when they were messing around with doing something like this in a, a lab out of the Netherlands. Do you remember that? Correct, like, yeah. They should not yeah. be doing this. And... Um, you know, it's just not worth it. And the problem is that I, I guess one, and they talk about this in the Vanity Fair article is that um, a lot of the virologists were keeping their mouths shut because they're worried about the scrutiny. Because if you shut down gain of function research, you really limit what virologists can even do. Right. And so uh, yeah. th- nobody wants to invite regulation into their particular 
part of the world, right? Because it just makes people's lives more difficult, more complicated. And you have people, bureaucrats and governments getting involved in something they probably don't even understand and really kind of screwing up your life, right? So you could see why they're kind of resistant to that. And there are, and, and maybe there are valid reasons to do some gain of function research. But I think when you're doing gain of function research on human pathogens, like that's a whole nother level. And what happened here was, is that there was a moratorium on this from the from funding, just from funding in the US. So it wasn't like it was illegal. And then they lifted it with some caveats in 2017. And then what happened was, is the was it the the NAISD or whatever the hell it's uh, the, the the agency that Fauci is or Fauci is the um, heads. They funded, they gave some funding to what's called EcoHealth, which is a nonprofit, which then repackaged that grant and sent them and, and basically gave out smaller grants to different research institutes or, or universities. And they gave 600,000 to the Wuhan Institute of Virology. Okay. And, and it was obvious, I think, from the abstract that they were working on human coronaviruses or I think maybe human or bat coronaviruses at the very least. They were doing bat coronaviruses, but they were working, doing gain of function. Like that was in the abstract. What's gain of function? Meaning that you're, you're trying to be able to get this thing to do something that it couldn't do before. Like it now has a function. It, it could not infect human cells. Now it can. <laughs> now, did you just say that Fauci was somehow involved with, with funding this? Well, he is in charge of the agency that, did, that gave the funding to EcoHealth. EcoHealth, in turn, spliced up this funding and gave 600000 to the Wuhan well, Institute. Well, that's a really good reason why he would poo-poo it then. Yeah, well, that's what they said in, in the Hacker News on the first comment said, look, you know, he, it's amazing. He just, he just in, in, in May of 2021, admitted that they were, that there was um, some uh, gain of function research, which is, he, you know, look, I mean, the problem was, the problem wow. is, okay, when you had Trump out there spouting all this nonsense and then Fauci trying to be like the reasonable scientist who says, okay, you know, you know, you had the media and the left immediately fall in love with Fauci. It makes Fauci look amazing. But, but he may that, not be an yeah. amazing guy. He may, yeah. be a de he may be a decent guy. He may be a good guy. But if his agency, which he's head, is, is, is funding either directly or even indirectly gain-of-function research, and he, he has a culpability to that, right? Like, that's a, that's you crazy. should know what the hell is going on. Right, I mean, if it's like if a CEO um, was head, of, let's say the head of a CEO was of, of some company that was dumping, um, you know, some toxic waste in the ocean, people would hold that CEO accountable. He's like, "Well, I didn't know, you know, we're a big company." They're like, "Bullshit!" Right? Bullshit. And I think people have to, you know, look at Fauci and go, "Okay, you know." If you didn't know, if you were completely unaware what EcoHealth was doing, and you gave you know X millions of dollars to EcoHealth, why didn't you know? I mean, and, and first of all, if they are if they are funding research that is circumventing what we're worried about, but you're giving it to China, and the reason they were giving it to Wuhan Institute in, in, in part is because they were less restricted in what they could do. Like it's just kind of a way of getting around. Oh my god! Things right, um, because I mean, in the guy, uh, I, Dasik, I think is his name, the guy who is, runs uh, Eco Health and stuff. I mean, I guess he's a respected guy and he's a smart scientist, and people say he's a wonderful person. But it doesn't mean that he wasn't making decisions that were probably bad decisions. 
that were probably risky decisions that you're ultimately putting fun, you're funding something that's that's outside of um, any type of oversight in the U.S. Right, and you know there'd already been um, questions about how secure their um, you know their site was. I mean, they they built it as this BSL four site, but then it turned out that there was. I mean, I don't know how much he knew about this or what, but she. The 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 scientists in charge of it. Um, I can't. She was her last S H I H. I don't know how you pronounce that, but she's like a, she's an expert in the corona back coronavirus stuff, and she admitted that oh, their coronavirus research was done at BSL three and sometimes at BSL two le, um, levels. And BSL two is equivalent to what your dentist office does, right? So anyway, we don't have to get too into the detail any more of the details in this, but there's a real question of if if Fauci knew that they were funding gain of research function, uh, gain of gain of function research on potentially things that could be, um, you know, infect humans, then that's a huge problem for him. I if wish he, I could remember. I was going. We keep, keep but going. if he didn't know, it's like, why aren't you paying attention to this? Because oh, so either way, he's co- he's culpable and on, a, on I mean, some level. And someone on Hacker News said, "Well, you know, they're they they do billions of dollars of funding a year." It's like. Yeah, but still, if you're spending millions of dollars to EcoHealth and they're funding this gain of function research, like you, you people should be paying attention to this. Your your fun, your organization is dysfunctional if you're not aware of this stuff going on. It's just not acceptable to be doing this kind of research um, out of sight and without any sort of without any sort of regulatory oversight. Well, you know, if at on. All. Um... On No Agenda, they, I wish I could remember exactly what they said, but uh, I remember listening to an episode and they were really down on Fauci about his, his handling of AIDS. He had something that they believe a similar kind of culpability in, in the whole AIDS thing. Um, so I don't know. It's, yeah. it's interesting. I mean, look, I, you know, look, you know, I, 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 I was mostly a Fauci fan, you know, when he was standing up trying to give the straight dope on the coronavirus when Trump would get up there and say a bunch of stuff that was obviously not true like the it was going to mysteriously disappear in april or magically disappear in april all this kind of just silliness and he would get up there and try and be a little more honest about the possibilities and you know he 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 may overall be a good responsible a good person and a responsible scientist but it looks like at least at this level there are some uh there's some real problems here you know, and 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 some in the in the U.S. Um, funding uh, agencies and anyone involved in this, it needs to be held accountable for what either they did or didn't do. And we need to have a lot more oversight into this kind of stuff. You cannot be funding gain of research on on human pathogens or something I mean, human pathogenic. Um, I mean, it's just too dangerous. And we just saw, like you said, like we talked about, it's like basically like you know one of the more innocuous diseases and it just basically knocked knocked the entire world on its ass for you know two years right well i love the fact that uh, we're ending the show with letters from the dark side <laughs> <laughs> yeah, sorry my sorry about my rant there at the end but i just uh, no it's you know, great it's great it's classic classic jason roberts i love it <laughs> you, you know i was actually thinking about there's a um I don't know if he listens to texting anymore. I know he did at one point, and I was I was on Twitter with him, and he said that um, who 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 
Alexandros, I think it was Alexandros, pronounced last name, Marinos, I think. Um, he's he's got a PhD in computer science, and he's, he does he's doing a, I think he's in Seattle doing a startup, and I just pinged him on Twitter because he did this like twenty one tweet storm about everything that happened in sequence about the um the Wuhan mm. lab leak stuff. Yeah. And that was, it was awesome. I was like, that is great. I said, you know, maybe it would be interesting to bring you on a show. And, and then we do like an in-depth discussion of all this stuff, you know? Yeah. And he's like, well, you know, I'm not a virologist. I'm just a computer scientist. I just track this stuff. I'm like, that's fine, man. I, I don't have a PhD in anything. It hasn't stopped me from stopping <laughs> <stuff off>. you. <laughs> I mean, it would be fun. Yeah, sure. Set it up. So I don't know. We'll, we'll see. I mean, in that way, if people aren't in, you know, if they're into the Wuhan thing, if you think it's an interesting story and I think it's important, then, you know, listen, if you're like, I've had enough of Wuhan, then, you know, you can skip it. But um, I don't know. I personally find, I think it's, I think this is the, I think this It'll is. It'll just a, come up in the feed. People can choose to listen or not. I mean, you know, yeah. we'll say what I, it's I think, about. I think it's the biggest story of, you know, the last you know, five to 10 years, I'll be honest okay, with you. Okay, but the final, well, my final note on this mm -hmm. is I was thinking, like the equivalent, the coding sort of thing that you could do is, you know, get get a wrong number in a in a in an autopilot software for a plane or something, mm -hmm. um, you know, and kill a couple of hundred people. But the stakes, <laughs> the stakes here are so, so big, like, screw, you know, a screw up. I mean, essentially, this is a screw up, right? It's just not, you know, not good safety standards within the lab. Mm -hmm. And that's how it got out, right? Well, it's 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 probably not good safety standards. It's probably doing something that was ill-advised in the first place, right? And it's it's sort of sneaking around the um, uh, the regulations, right? You're you're probably doing something. There's a reason why that that the, that we put a moratorium on this stuff. That's that why. That's why you should have regulations. Yeah, I mean, yes. look, I'm not a huge For fan of, you know, tons of regulations, but you need, you do need some, you need reps some on the places. field, you do need some the reps places, in the field, yeah. you need, you can't have people walking around selling, you know, you, you know, plutonium, and you can't have people, you know, turning <laughs> small, you know, you know, creating smallpox, you know, and, and trying to... <laughs> Yes. Get a gain of function stuff. I mean, you know, come on, guys. It's like this is just. I don't care how interesting the science is or how or whatever. It's just too dangerous, and that's the, that's the problem is is that you get some of these scientists, and they used to say that at the Manhattan Project. Some of the scientists said about the Manhattan Project. They would say, um, they would say, um, you know, the they even though they had a sense about the horrors that they were potentially creating, it was the science was so sweet. <laughs> Right. You just oh, get so enamored with, you know, the problem that you're trying to solve. It's like, oh, can we make this happen? Can we get this? It's just so interesting. It's so interesting. The whole point of Fringe, right? That show. Yeah. yeah. And it's like, I know it's interesting. And I know, you know, but but it's there, there's got to be a limit to what certain things that we do or if they are done, they are done in a much more safe, in a much safer way. I mean, you could worry about making things, maybe they don't affect human cells, maybe they affect some other type of animal cells that are further away from humans, right? And if you did do um, something like that, you would do it in a BSL-4, you know, thing in the United States under heavy, heavy... Um, it reminds me limit, of, um, limits. At, you know, Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. and Arrow and all those shows. Essentially, the the only thing they talk about, I tweeted about this the other day, like the only thing they talk about is like, you know, do something bad to do something good. Is mm -hmm. that more? Is that moral? Is that morality? Mm -hmm. And it's like this is this is along those lines. 
Yeah. Well, I just think the risk profile of this kind of decision is just bad because because the, they they how quickly Moderna was able to create a vaccine literally in a couple days. It was like a few days after the, you know, it was like in January, I think early February, January, might even January, they created the, the vaccine that quickly. I mean, it took many, many months before obviously it passed through all these FDA trials and, and production was ramped up, but they didn't, they didn't have to do gain of function on the cell to do it. I don't think, you know, but then again, you know, maybe it would have made it harder if they didn't had an isolated version of it, but I don't know. I just still don't think it's worth I still don't think it's worth doing the gain of function stuff. It just sounds too, you know, because what happens is if you can get, if, if, a, if a company like Moderna can, can synthesize a vaccine in a matter of days, then if something pops up that never appeared, that was zoonotic and appeared out of nowhere, then clearly we're getting to the point where we can create vaccines relatively quickly. We don't have to go try and engineer it just in case it does you know, arrive from a zoonotic um, from from a zoonotic source, right? I don't know. Yeah, like the avian flu. Yeah, yeah. So I don't know. I just you know, I think I've made my point on this. But uh, yeah, all right, but um, <laughs> <laughs> no, nice, nice. Um, so I think I think we're Is good. It? We good? Was there any was there any other little points you wanted to bring in? No, from... I think I've I've said my piece, man. You know, I said your piece. <laughs> All right, said my piece. Peace out. All right, that's a wrap. We're out.